Women's Fight Pack, issue 26, pages 15 to 22. Page 15 to page 19. We are the Lions, Mr. Manager, honouring the Grundwick strike by Jean Lane. 20th of August 2021 was the 45th anniversary of the start of one of the most important struggles in British working class history, the two-year strike by Grundwick film processing workers in north-west London. Below we publish an overview of the strike and its, and its significance written by Jean Lane in 1998. On the 7th of November 1977, a pitched battle took place on the streets of North London between the police and thousands of workers. It was one event in a two-year struggle for trade union recognition. The strike was called Grunwick, and many of the lessons from it were similar to those that were to come out of the great miners' strike of 1984-5, seven years later, and out of the Liverpool Dockers' strike, 1995-1998. Questions of solidarity, the law, the role of the state, the need for rank-and-file organisation across the trade unions, all were raised then, as they have been, by working-class struggle since. The Grunwick strike, however, was different from other big battles of the working class before it, and since in one significant way. It was, in many ways, a strike that was not meant to happen. It did not involve workers in a large, powerful union with a militant history like the miners, who had brought the Tory government down only a few years before in 1974, or the dockers or engineers who had helped the miners close the Saltley Gates in 1972. The workers of Grunwick were not unionised at all and had no experience of being in a union. They were mostly women, in large part young women, who had to fight their families for the right to join the picket line. They were overwhelmingly Asian, many of whom spoke little English, and who were being employed by Grunwick because they could be used as cheap labour. Yet their struggle would reverberate throughout the labour movement. Conditions at Grunwick Grunwick was a small film processing plant situated on two sites, Chapter Road and Cobbold's Road in Wilsdon, North London. Conditions inside the factory were appalling. The union, the workers had no representation. Rates of pay differed from one individual to another. White workers were employed on different, higher paid jobs. Overtime was compulsory and could be imposed at a moment's notice. Conditions inside the centre of the dispute, the mail-order department at Chapter Road, were particularly draconian. Grunwick made itself competitive by paying low wages, about £28 for a 48-hour week. The national average for wages at that time was £72, and a full-time woman manual worker in London got £44. And by providing a fast service to people sending photographs in by post, this was long before digital photography. The pressure inside the mail order department was very high, and the manager, a Mr. Alden, ruled it like a despot. If women asked for time off to look after sick children, they were told, this is not a holiday camp. Compulsory overtime could be imposed when a woman was going to pick her children up from nursery. 
she would have to either work on worrying about the face of her child or argue with her supervisor and get the sack. Sackings were high. The annual staff turnover was 100%. This was an atmosphere of subservience and fear. Wildcat action. In summer of 1976, the summer of 1976 was a record-breaking hot one. Inside the mail-order department, there were no windows and no air conditioning. It was a very profitable time for Gronwick. People were taking photos as if they were on permanent holiday. The pressure of work was incredible. Four young men who had earlier discussed the need for a trade union decided to work slowly one Friday afternoon right under Eldon's nose. One was sacked and the other three walked out, leaving a huge crate of work unfinished. That might have been the end of it, as the four had no idea what to do next and just hung around the gates outside. Inside, an argument developed between Alden and one of the women workers, Mrs. Jayaban Desai, who was to become one of the leaders of the strike and its most eloquent participant. She had just been told that she could not go home as more work had come in. She demanded her cards and then, instead of just leaving, made a speech to the other workers standing in two sweltering lines along their workbench. When Alden compared the workers to chattering monkeys, Desai replied, quotes, what, are you running, what you are running here is not a factory, it is a zoo, but in a zoo there are many types of animals. Some are monkeys who dance on your fingertips, others are lions who can bite your head off. We are the lions, Mr. Manager, end quotes. She and her son, Sonil, joined the other four still hanging around the gate. The following Monday, the six turned up with placards and petitions. Every member of the mail order department and other workers besides signed on their way into work to say they wanted a trade union. Sunil rode to the nearest citizen's advice bureau on his bicycle to find out what to do next. They gave him the phone number of Apex, the Association of Professional Executive Clerical and Computer Staffs, the TUC and Brent Trades Council. <clears throat> At 3pm that day, 50 other workers in the mail order department walked out. The strike had begun. The strikers marched to Cobbold Road, where Grunwick's processing department was situated. The managers at Cobbold Road locked the doors, imprisoning the workers inside and turning up the radios so that no contact could be made between the strikers and the workers inside. One young woman had her face slapped when she tried to open a window. Another was threatened with a broken bottle by a driver guarding the entrance. Only seven workers joined the strike from Cobbold that day. A mass meeting was called of all workers in a local car park at which the decision to join a union was agreed. The management said they would rather the plant closed than see a union in it. The strikers said they would not join as individuals, only as a union. Six workers, 60 workers joined Apex. More workers over the next week walked out of Cobalt Road until there were 137 strikers out of a workforce of 480. Thus, began what might have been called a what might have been a small localized unwritten story of a strike for trade union recognition, but which became a long battle, nationally and internationally known, 
and which involved thousands of other workers from up and down the country. The striking workers were sacked, and the fights quickly became one for reinstatement as well as recognition. Apex wanted a speedy resolution to the dispute through negotiation, but George Ward, the owner of Grunwick, refused. They then tried to get independent arbitration through ACAS, but Ward, full of his own important rights to rule his workers as he pleased, I can buy Patel for £15, wouldn't recognise their right to tell him what to do. His cause was taken up by the right-wing and anti-union National Association for Freedom, NAFF, who funded and handled all Ward's legal business for the duration of the strike. They threatened, for example, legal action against the Postal Workers' Union, the UPW, for blacking Grunwick's mail. Tom Jackson, leader of the UPW, immediately called the blacking off. Strikers did get support. Kodak workers blacked photographic supplies to the factory. Grunwick managers bought it themselves in small quantities and smuggled it through the picket lines in the boots of their cars. The postal workers refused to cross the picket line, so Grunwick had to go and collect it themselves. Mail order work from Germany, Belgium and Holland could only be got in by moving from port to port and eventually buying their own plane and flying it to small airfields. Victimisation and Violence Managers baited strikers on the picket lines from behind the gates and bullied them on their way in. Mrs. Desai had her foot run over by one car and was taken to hospital. A pregnant woman was knocked over. The response of Apex was to call for a court of inquiry, but they got down, bogged down in the law. The strikers got left at the gate, demoralised, until one morning in March 1977, when only one picket turned up. He was later found badly beaten up. Complaints to the police were met with, quotes, he deserved what he got, end quotes. The police continued to pick off and harass pickets on the picket line. Mrs. Desai was arrested and charged with assault of two of the Grunwick managers. She was four foot eleven inches tall and on the other side of a high fence at the time. Not surprisingly, her case was later dropped and the courts on releasing other pickets wrapped the police over the knuckles for trying to impose a six-person picket which was not law. Costs were awarded against them. By now the strikers had lost any faith in the law or the police, to be fair, or indeed in the official labour movement to help them. Mahmoud Ahmed, secretary of the strike committee, said, quotes, The TUC should, be, TUC should be coming to ask us how they can help. Instead, we have to keep going to them, end quotes. And Jayabin Desai expressed her bitterness at being left on the picket line. She said, Official action from the TUC is like honey on your elbow. You can smell it, you can see it, but you can never taste it. End quotes. The strikers put out a call for a mass picket. There was to be a week of action, and the first picket on Monday, the 13th of June, 1977, was to be a women's picket, which was in the, in the strike committee's mind to emphasise the peaceful intention of the picket and to have a restraining effect on the police. Far from it. The police on the day punched, kicked and dragged pickets across the road by their hair. This happened to Mrs. Desai and she was kicked repeatedly. 
another woman arrested in the same way was released by the police who were immediately surrounded by a crowd of angry, sari-clad women screaming at them to let her go. The ferocity of their response took the police by surprise. Johnny Patel of the strike committee was repeatedly hit by a policeman who was yelling in a rage, You pecky bastard! More workers from Cobalt Road joined the strike. Post office workers at the Cricklewood office unofficially resumed their blacking of Grunwick's mail against the instruction of their leader, Tom Jackson, and the other officers officers refused to handle it if it was transferred to their offices. TNG drivers refused to carry police to Chapter Road. Even bank workers attempt to get the handling of Grunwick's account blacked. Collective action. By Friday of that week, the mass picket was 1,500 strong. For the first time, pickets outnumbered police. The week of action was extended and hopes were running high. On seeing the police put in their place by row upon row of engineers, dockers, seamen and builders, after a whole winter of watching them harassing and in- intimidating young women, Jayabin Desai said, quotes, When they talked of the power of the trade union movements, I listened, but I didn't really believe. Now I see that power. End quotes. That week, Grunwick began bussing their scabs into the plant to prevent any contact with the pickets. And for the first time ever, the special police, special patrol group, SPG, an armed, specially organized section of the police force supposedly to deal with terrorism, was used in a trades dispute. For the following month, Grunwick's picket lines were the lead item on everyone's TVs. The police brutality was unbelievable. One minor described Saltley as a children's Sunday picnic in comparison. The media's lies, too, were extraordinary, getting in good practice for the next minor strike to come. Print workers, on more than one occasion, took industrial action to re- redress the media balance in favour of the strikers. Just as the arch scab from Nottinghamshire's coalfields during the 1984 miners' strike was to be lauded as Silver Birch, as standing up for decent workers' rights to work, so, seven years earlier, George Ward was celebrated for his fine struggle against intimidation from strikers and union bully boys. Shocked by the action of the SPG, the miners called for a day of action on the 11th of July. Despite the fact that Apex recognised that it was the police who were creating the violence, they were not for a day of action. Quotes, we want to diffuse the situation, not exacerbate it, end quotes. They preferred instead to put their faith in the court of inquiry. The strike committee, however, who had a belly full of legal loopholes, welcomed the call. The TUC and Apex decided to diffuse the 11th July mass picket by calling a march for the same day. They instructed the strike committee to call off the picket and support the march. The strike committee refused, calling on trade unionists to, to support both. This was a mistake. On the day, a fantastic show of strength occurred outside Grunwick. 20,000 supporters turned up, outnumbering police three to one and pushing them down the road. The scab bus was kept out. There was no violence and few arrests. 
but at 11am the vast majority of pickets went off to join the march on the other side of Wilsdon. The bus got in and 24 isolated pickets were arrested. The UPW Two days before, in a desperate attempt to break the blockade, Grunwick, with the help of NAFF, 250 right-wing volunteers and 150 vehicles got their built-up mail out of the plant to a depot outside London, where it was stamped by strike-breaking volunteers and driven to district offices all over the country. The UPW, who now had a grievance of their own since non-union, non-post office people had handled the mail, still refused to make the unofficial blacking official. They sent telegrams to UPW branches telling them to sort the mail. Jackson's spinelessness was matched by that of the leadership of the TUC and Apex in their efforts to wind down the mass pickets and persuade the strike committee to wait the outcome of the court of inquiry. The strike committee called over their heads for a solid turnout every day and for another huge turnout on 8th August. Their concerns were now threefold. They still wished to persuade other Grunwick workers to join the dispute, though they knew they could never have a solid all-out strike. Their best chance of winning now was solidarity from other key workforces, blacking essential services to Grunwick and forcing George Ward to give in. The mass picket was also therefore to support and give confidence to the unofficial action taken by the Cricklewood postal workers. The strikers did not totally dismiss the legal steps that their leadership was taking. To have ACAS rule in favour of the strikers, for example, had been a boost and a good media point in their favour. They saw the mass pickets, however, as crucial because it put pressure on the courts and the independent arbiters to rule in their favour. The trade union bureaucrats wished to use the law rather <coughs> than direct action. The strikers believed that the action was the key to winning and that the use of the law could only benefit them while the action continued. On 29th of July, Black Friday, Roy Grantham, the Apex leader, and Ken Smith met the strike committee to pressurise them into calling 8th August off. At exactly the same time, Norman Stagg, Deputy General Secretary of the UPW, met the Cricklewood postal workers to get them to call off their unofficial blacking. He threatened them with expulsion from the union, which would affect their pension rights and leave them open to dismissal. The strike committee were resisting bravely, even though they were threatened with their strike pay being cut by 60%, until word came through that the Cricklewoods workers had buckled, voting very narrowly to resume normal working. Mrs Desai angrily attacked the union leadership. She and all the other younger Asian women who had had to fight their own husbands and parents 11 months earlier to be able to take part in the dispute at all, voted en bloc against calling off the day of action. When a new strike committee was elected soon afterwards, it included five of these militants. A UPW delegate told the next trades council meeting, quotes, Our union leadership has done something that George Ward, John Gorst and the NAWF failed to do. They forced us back, end quotes. 3,000 people still turned up to 
picket on 8th of August, the new strike committee began putting pressure on the TUC to sanction the blacking of essential services to Grunwick. This was now the only way to win, but the relevant unions had all told the Grunwick strikers that without the backing of the TUC, their members would not have the confidence to stick their necks out. At Labour Party conference, the strikers received a standing ovation. A a resolution pledging support, however, could only go as far as a call for an amendment to the law forcing employers like wards to cooperate with ACAS. It was ministers from the Labour government who were overseeing the use of violence police tactics and the introduction of the SPG into a trade dispute, bullying the strikers into submission. The strikers backing, backed up their lobbying of the TUC and the Labour Party with a resumption of mass picketing and, sensing from those trade unionists who had given them support throughout, that there was a limit to the number of times they could be called upon to travel up and down the country without a resolution to the battle in sight, decided to go for one final push to put pressure on the Labour movement to help them bring George Ward to his knees. They called a day of reckoning for 7th of November. Cop riots. 8,000 turned up. The police were savage, meeting out organised and indiscriminate violence. One picket had his face smashed through the glass of the police van. Strikers, who had become cut off from the main body of protest, were made to run the gauntlet between two rows of truncheon-wielding policemen. Heavily protected policemen ran after pickets, dressed in no more than shirt sleeves, jeans and trainers, kicked them senseless on the ground and then walked away laughing. 243 pickets were treated for injuries, 12 had broken bones, 113 were arrested. When after this, further requests from the strike committee for the blacking of essential services were met with excuses and empty promises of support, Mrs. Desai and three other strikers, in desperation, began a hunger strike outside Congress House. Their union leadership tried to persuade them to do it outside Grunwick instead, offering to lay on the services of a doctor. When the strikers pointed out that George Ward would happily see them starve and went ahead with their plan, they were suspended from the union without strike pay for four months. For months the strikers continued on their own, taunted by the management on the other side of the gates, just as they had at the beginning of the dispute almost two years earlier. They finally announced the end of the dispute on the 14th of July 1978. No reinstatements had been achieved. No union got into Grunwick. Ironically, wages inside the plant rose quite considerably during the dispute. At a time when the Labour government was imposing the social contract on the unions in the form of pay restraint and a holding down of the class struggle, George Ward bought his scab labour with all sold at 25% across the board wage increase throughout the company. If any other group of workers had demanded this type of pay increase at that time of tightening of belts to help the country, they would have been slated by the media. George Ward was upheld as a fine and noble character. That media hypocrisy, the savagery of the police, the support of NAFF for George Ward, and the gutlessness of the workers' leadership 
who were more concerned to bolster a Paroki minority Labour government than to fight for the ending of, a, of sweatshop conditions in their own class, all combined to crush the Grunwick strike. The two occasions during the dispute when Ward was nearly beaten were those when the courageous Cricklewood postal workers blacked Grunwick's mail. That kind of rank-and-file confidence and solidarity in spite of weak leadership is the only way workers can ensure that they have the backing needed to win that Ward got from NAFF. Their class stuck together. Ours should too. If the leaders of our movements won't deliver, the rank and file must organise to force them or to cast them aside. That same lesson was to surface again with redoubled force during the minor strike of 1984-5. Although it was to take place under different conditions and over different demands, the basic lessons of class solidarity and rank and file organisation were the same, as were those of the hypocrisy of the media and the role of the state. The Grunwick strikers lost, but the labour movement as a whole gained in two important ways. Firstly, the strike helped to knock down very forcefully the prejudices inside the movement against black and women workers. It was at the same time rare for a union to have the kind of anti-racist and anti-sexist policies that are considered the norm now. The myths that black workers are hard to unionise and, and undercut white workers' jobs and that women's place is in the home and that women only go out to work for pin money were exploded by this dispute for union recognition, union wages and conditions. A dispute led by Asian and women workers drew in and influenced thousands of other workers everywhere. Secondly, a few years in the run-up to the Grunwick dispute saw a lull in the class struggle in Britain with low strike figures. The general atmosphere was that of keep your head down, don't rock the boat, don't break the law. That goes with a weekly-led movement tied to and in the pockets of the government. The Grunwick strike put class struggle back on the agenda, which was to lead only one year later to the winter of discontent and the downfall of the government. The Tories learnt their lessons well and piecemeal removed the union's influence on government and shackled the unions with laws that make a legal strike virtually impossible. The Labour movement must learn its lessons too, not to rely on help from above, but to rely on its own strength and solidarity to win. Page 20-22 Could the Online Sex Trafficking Act be the new war on drugs? By Ellie Clark In 2018, the Trump administration signed into law the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act of 2017, often referred to as Fostar. Fighting sex trafficking is a name that no right-minded person could disagree with. It's not necessary to explain that sex trafficking of anyone of any age, but especially minors, is one of the most abhorrent acts on earth. Dig a little deeper, however, and you quickly find that this act is far from what it claims to be. Freedom of expression, advocates, sex worker rights, advocates and even some anti-human trafficking organisations have been quick to point out that this bill does absolutely nothing to tackle the issue of human trafficking. Instead, it, re it presents a clear danger to the safety of women. 
This is because it was never intended to fight sex trafficking. Put simply, the war on human trafficking is a war on prostitution. In fact, the bill includes the word prostitution as much as it includes reference, reference to sex trafficking victims. Dreamed up by the Christian conservative right and supported by punitive anti-sex worker feminists, Foster sees all selling of sex, regardless of the agency or consent of the sex workers, involved as a form of human trafficking. The Act targets activities as broad as offering or soliciting paid sex to living with a sex worker. One of the most devastating effects of this Act, though, is that it makes it a felony to promote or facilitate prostitution. This means that online channels such as Backpage, Craigslist and Reddit, which sex workers have been using for years to advertise, have removed all their classified sections. Even though Foster is a piece of American legislation, the Act is having ramifications for sex workers across the world. Increased Danger Classified ads gave sex workers the opportunity to communicate with and screen clients before meeting them in person. These sites also allowed sex workers to communicate with each other, creating and sharing online blacklists of dangerous clients. Foster has managed to make an already dangerous profession exponentially more so overnight. Anti-sex trafficking organisations have also pointed out all the bill actually achieves in regards to sex trafficking is driving it further underground and making victims harder to reach. On top of this, it has dried up the online client base and forced women back to the dangers of selling sex on the streets. The people profiting most from all this are pimps. Women are left with little choice but to capitulate to dangerous third-party precursors, making them more at risk of exploitation and trafficking. Much like the war on drugs, the war on sex trafficking is a faux crusade designed to whip up a moral panic against the vulnerable people it claims to protect. The justification for this crusade is based on highly dubious, unsubstantiated data. There is no evidence that sex trafficking is on the rise in the US. In fact, due to its very nature, we have absolutely no idea how many victims of sex trafficking there are across the world at any given time. According to a 2015 article in Reason magazine, the government's accountability office, GAO, described the Department of Homeland Security Security's figures on sex trafficking as questionable, citing, quotes, methodological weaknesses, gaps in data, and numerical discrepancies. The U.S. government's estimate was developed by one person who did not document all his work, end quotes. Going on, the article explains, quotes, even if he had, there would still be good reasons to doubt the quality of the data, which was compiled from a range of non-profits, governments and international organizations, all of which use different definitions of trafficking, end quotes. In the same year, Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post used his fact-checker article to debunk the often-used statistic that 300,000 children are at risk of sexual exploitation in the U.S., 
This is a claim used over and over again by proponents of the Act in both the Senate and Congress. However, there are baseless figures that have been denounced by the Crimes Against Children Research Centre at the University of New Hampshire. Kessler explains, quotes, The 300,000 figure comes from a 2001 report written by Richard J. Estes and Neil Weiner of the University of Pennsylvania. So the study relies on data from the 1990s. That should be an immediate red flag. End quote. The report suggested that about 326,000 children were at risk for commercial sexual exploitation, but this was a somewhat nebulous term that did not necessarily mean the children were forced into prostitution. The researchers started by compiling the numbers of youths in 14 different categories, such as foreign children, children in public housing, or female gang members. But many of these categories could overlap, such a female foreign-born child in public housing who were part of a gang, that one person would count as three. The study also made a series of assumptions that simply were not scientifically sound, a problem the researchers themselves were quick to point out. Unfortunately, facts matter little in the face of a mass hysteria that is capable of furthering political gain and diverting a mind-boggling amount of federal funds into law enforcement channels. We saw how this exact pattern played out with the war on drugs. We all now know the devastating human cost of that war. Generations of lives and entire communities were ripped apart and decimated. The police were militarized and the state was handed powers so draconian they could shock Orwell. The war on drugs ushered in the age of mass incarceration and created the perfect conditions for one of the most profitable industries in the world, the prison industrial complex. The United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. As of 2019, around 1.5 million people were serving a custodial sentence. In 2013, 716 per 100,000 of the national population was locked up in prison. Of the people locked up today, 176,300 were imprisoned for drug-related offences. According to market research conducted by Ibis World in 2014, private correctional facilities were a $4.8 billion industry that year with profits of $629 million. This is before we even begin to consider the amount of money states make, make of prisoners by using them as free labor. Profiting from vulnerability the war on drugs did nothing to curtail the drug trade, but it did achieve one thing extremely well. It made the oppressors, be they cartel bosses or for-profit prison operators, astronomically rich off the backs of some of the most vulnerable sections of the working class. The war on prostitution, let's call it what it is, will be no different. The public opinion on the war on drugs is slowly beginning to shift. Younger people tend to be far more liberal about drug use and far more aware of the failures of criminalisation. 
This, in turn, is starting to influence a relaxation of drug laws. The same is not true for sex work. Despite being the oldest, and I'd hazard a guess most sought-after, profession in the world, prostitution still has the ability to elicit a strong reaction from people. Add child exploitation into the mix, and you can quickly get a perfect storm of fraught emotions and dangerous legislation. Prohibit prohibitionist laws are always enforced more heavily in communities that are already marginalized and over-policed. In 2018, black males accounted for 34% of the total male prison population and Hispanic males 24%. This is despite the fact black people only represent around 13% of the US population and a Hispanic people 18%. Sex work is a part of every walk of life, but sex workers of colour, trans sex workers and people who walk on the streets are much more likely to face harassment, assault, arrest and robbery at the hands of the police. These are the people who bear the brunt of the war on prostitution. High-class escorts with well-established client lists, respectable business models and indoor premises will be mostly sheltered from it. This is especially perverse considering these are the people who can most afford legal counsel and the limited protections offered inside the criminal justice system. Rich businessmen with the means to conduct their dates in restaurants and nice hotel rooms also be sheltered from laws aimed at clients. There are around 219,000 incarcerated women in the US according to a 2018 report by the Prison Police Policy Initiative. This is eight times higher than the number recorded in 1980 and it's no secret that the vast majority of these women are black or brown and or live below the poverty line. These women are subject to horrific abuse at the hands of the state. Male prison officers have ultimate control over female prisoners who are completely reliant on them for basic necessities. They can beat, degrade and even sexually abuse the women in their charge, seemingly with impunity. As Angela Davis states in Women and Women, War and Resistance, Frontline Feminism, quotes, the sexual abuse of women in prison is one of the most heinous state-sanctioned human rights violations within the United States today. Women prisoners represent one of the most disenfranchised and invisible adult populations in our society. The absolute power and control the state exercises over their lives both stems from and perpetuates the patriarchal and racist structures that, for centuries, have resulted in the social domination of women. The inevitable swell in street work since 2018 has been met with more arrests, raids, harassments and custodial sentencing. Yet sex trafficking is a very real problem that needs to be combated, but Foster does nothing to address it. Instead, it pushes women into further danger at the hands of pimps, clients and, perhaps worst of all, the police, all the while feeding the insatiable poverty to prison pipeline and perpetuating the prison industrial complex. If we are going to have any hope of tackling sex trafficking, then we need solutions that get to the root of the problem, 
not hyperbolic moral crusades against the sex industry. If we have learnt nothing else from the war on drugs, surely we have learnt by now that criminalising entire industries achieves nothing except pushing those industries further into the hands of the most unscrupulous people on earth. A New Generation of Kerges Heroines by Katie Dollar The kidnapping of brides has been banned for decades in Kyrgyzstan, an ex-USSR Central Asian Republic lying north of Tajikistan and Afghanistan. The law was tightened in 2013 with sentences of up to 10 years in prison for those who kidnap a woman to force her into marriage. Previously it was a fine of 2,000 soms, about £20. Despite that, the medieval practice of ala kuchu, take and run, persists to this day. The Women's Support Centre in Bishkek has estimated that 12,000 forced marriages take place every year and very few perpetrators are convicted. About 80% of the girls kidnapped accept their fate, often on the advice of their parents. It is estimated that 2,000 women are raped by their future husbands each year and are condemned to marry as a result because returning to their family would be a dark mark of shame. Fleeing brides also risk further violence and even death. Azada Kanatabokavova, 27, was found strangled to death two days after being snatched off the street by five men. The kidnapping took place in daylight in the centre of Bishkek, the capital city. Kanat Bekova's mother said police had laughed off her plea for help after the abduction and told her she'd soon be dancing at her daughter's wedding. In 2018, a woman was murdered and mutilated while seeking help in a police station. The victim, Burulai Terdali Kize, a 20-year-old medical student, was killed by the man who had kidnapped her. He stabbed her, then carved her initials and those of another man she had planned to marry onto the woman's body. The officers had left the two of them alone in the waiting room, though she had made charges against him. A feminist activist has developed a successful video game for mobile phones that aims to convince young people that kidnapping is not a tradition but a crime. Despite the country's poverty, it has 134 mobile phone accounts per 100 people. It was 10 per 100 in 2005. Tatiana Kalenskaya designed the game's graphics working with the human rights organisation Open Lion Foundation, which supports victims of bride kidnapping through counselling and legal advice. Developers had hoped for 25,000 downloads. In just over six months, the app had already been downloaded more than 130,000 times. In the government, in the game, players witnessed the kidnapping of a best friend and must free her, while messages with suggestions prepared by psychologists, journalists and activists appear on the screen, as well as real telephone numbers that can be used in an emergency. Quotes by Selenskaya The idea is to make the girls understand that they are masters of their own destiny, This is why we transform them into heroines capable of rebelling and changing the course of things. 
for a generation of women who grew up with the idea that nothing is possible without a man's approval, unhinging this concept is difficult. End quotes. 